Chapter 9b of Football Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Anna Roberts. Football Days by William Edwards. Chapter 9 The Nineties and After, Part B. In 1904, Fred Murphy coached at Exeter. Fred says, This was probably the best team that Exeter had had up to that time. The team was captained by Tommy Thompson, who afterwards played at Cornell. Eddie Hart at that time stripped at about 195 pounds. This was the famous team on which Donald Mackenzie McFadden played and later made the Princeton varsity. Tad Jones was quarterback the first year he came to school. In those days they took to football intuitively, without much coaching. You never had to tell Tad Jones a thing more than once. He would think things out for himself. He showed great powers of leadership and good football sense. Howard Jones and Harry Vaughn played on this team. Charlie McCarthy of Brown will long be remembered for his great punting ability, says Fred Murphy. He had a great many pet theories. McCarthy is one of the best football men in the Brown list. In a letter which I have received from Charlie McCarthy, as a result of a wonderful victory over Minnesota one year, McCarthy writes, The students of the university gave me a beautiful gold watch engraved on the inside, to our friend Mac from the students of the University of Wisconsin. This shows how highly McCarthy is held at this university. McCarthy continues, I go out every fall and kick around with the boys still, and I hope to do so the rest of my life if I get a chance. I think the greatest football player I ever saw was Frank Hinkey. Speaking of my own ability as a player, I haven't much to say. I was not much of a football player, but I got by some way. I neither had the physique nor the ability, but tried to do my best. I am glad to say no one ever called me a quitter. I am proud to say that Brown University gave me a beautiful silver cup at the end of my four years for the best work in football, although the said cup belongs by rights to ten other men on the team. As one visits the dressing-room of the New York Giants, and sees the attendant work upon the wonderful physique of Christy Mathewson, one cannot help but realize what a potent factor he must have been on Bucknell's team. When Christy played, he was six feet tall and weighed 168 pounds stripped. He prepared at Keystone Academy, playing in the line. In 1898, when he went to Bucknell, he was immediately put at fullback and played there three years. Fred Crolius says of him, Of all the long-distance punters with hard kicks to handle, Percy Houghton and Christy Mathewson stand out in his memory. Mathewson had the leg power to turn his spiral over. That is, instead of dropping where ordinary spirals always drop, an additional turn seemed to carry the ball over the head of the back who was waiting for the ball, often carrying some fifteen or twenty yards beyond. Football has no more ardent admirer than Christy Mathewson. It will be interesting to hear what he has to say of his experience in the game of football. I like to play football, says Mathewson. I was a better football player than a baseball player in those days. I was considered a good punter. I was not much as a linebacker. The captain of the team always gave me a football to take with me in the summer. I occasionally had an opportunity to practice kicking after I was through with my baseball work. At Taunton, Massachusetts, my first summer, I ran across a fellow who was playing third base on the team for which I was pitching. McAndrews was his name. He was a Dartmouth man. He showed me how to kick. He showed me how to drop a spiral. I liked to drop kick and used to practice it quite a little. I remember how tough it was for me when Bucknell played Annapolis the year before when the Navy team had a man who could kick such wonderful spirals. They were terribly hard to handle and I was determined to profit by his example so I just hung on for dear life, punting spirals all summer. Later, I used to watch George Brooke punt a good deal when he was coaching. 
At that time drop-kickers were not so numerous. I had some recollection of a fellow named O'Day, who had a great reputation as a drop-kicker, as did Hudson of Carlisle. In 1898 we were to play Pennsylvania. Our team served as a preliminary game for Pennsylvania. They often beat us by large scores. Since then we have had teams which made a 6-5 to five score. But they had good teams in my time. We never scored on Penn, as I recall. Our coach said one day at the training table, I'll give a raincoat to the fellow who scores on Penn today. The manager walked in and overheard his remark and added, Yes, and I'll give a pair of shoes to the man who makes the second score against Penn. That put some pep into us. Anyway, we were on Penn's 35-yard line, and I kicked a field goal. After this, we rushed the ball and got up to Penn's 40-yard line, and from there I scored again, thereby winning the shoes and the raincoat. I went up to Columbia one day to see them practice. It was in the days when Foster Sanford was their coach. He saw me standing on the sidelines, came over to where I was, looked me over once or twice, and finally said, "'Why aren't you trying out for the team? I think you'd make a football player if you came out.' I said I guessed I would not be eligible. "'Why?' asked Sandy. "'Well,' I said, "'because I'm a professional.' Then some fellows around me grinned and told Sanford who I was. I love to think of the good old football days and some of the spirit that entered collegiate contests. Once in a while in baseball, I feel the thrill of that spirit. It was only recently that I experienced that get-together spirit, where a team full of life with everybody working together wrought great results. That same old thrill came to me during one of the Giants' trips in the West, in which they won seventeen straight victories. There is much good fellowship in football. I played against teams whose cheerleaders would give you a rousing cheer as you made a good play, then again you would meet the fellow who, when you were down in the scrimmage, or after you had kicked the ball, would try to put you down and out. One of the pleasantest recollections I have of playing was my experience against the two great academy teams, West Point and Annapolis. Never shall I forget one year when Bucknell played West Point. At an exciting moment in the game, Bucknell players made it possible for me to be in a position to kick the goal from the field from a difficult angle. After the score had been made, the West Point team stood there stupefied, and when the crowd got the idea that a goal had been kicked from a peculiar angle, they gave us a rousing cheer. Such is the proper spirit of American football, to see some sunshine in your opponent's play. Cheering helps so much to build up one's enthusiasm. Al Sharp was one of the greatest all-round athletes that ever wore the blue of Yale. He, too, recalls the Yale-Princeton game of 1899 at New Haven, but the memory comes to him as a nightmare. When I think about the 11-10 to 10 game at New Haven, which Princeton won, said Sharp the last time I saw him, I remember that after I had kicked a goal from the field and the score was 10-6, to 6, Skim Brown rushed up to me and nearly took me off my feet with one of his friendly slaps across my back. Well, I do remember the joy of the great Yale player at this stage of the game. Later, when Poe made his kick and I saw that the ball was going over the bar, I remember that the thing I wished most was that I could have been back up in the line where I might have had a chance to block the kick. My recollections of making the Yale team centered chiefly around three facts, none of which I was allowed to forget. First, that I was not any good. Second, that I couldn't tackle. And third, that I ran like an ice wagon. Since then, I have seen so many really good players upon my different squads that I must admit the truth of the above statement, although at the time I am frank to say I took exception to it. Such is the optimism of youth. Jack Munn, a former Princeton halfback, tells the following story. My brother, Edward Munn, was the manager of the Princeton team in 1893. In the spring of that year there was a conference with Yale representatives to decide where the game was to be played the following fall. 
Berkeley Oval, Brooklyn, Manhattan Field, and the respective fields of the two colleges all came under discussion, and I believe that some of the newspapers must have taken it up. One afternoon, in the Murray Hill Hotel, when representatives of Yale and Princeton were discussing the various possibilities, a bellboy knocked at the door and handed my brother an elaborately engraved card on which, among various decorations, the name of Colonel Cody was to be distinguished. Buffalo Bill was invited to come up, and it seems that, reading or hearing of the discussion about the field for the game, he came to make a formal offer of the use of his tent. After setting forth the desirability of staging the game under the auspices of his Wild West show, he brought his offer to a close with his trump card. "'For, gentlemen,' he said, "'besides all the other advantages which I have mentioned, there is this further attraction. My tent is well and sufficiently lighted, so that you can not only hold a matinee, but you can give an evening performance as well.' and those were the days of the flying wedge and two forty-five-minute halves with only ten-minute intermission walter c booth walter c booth a former princeton center rush was one of the select coterie of eastern football men that wended its way westward to carry the eastern system into institutions that had had no opportunity to build up the game yet were hungry for real football booth's trip was a successful one in the autumn of 1900, after graduating from college, I arrived at Lincoln, Nebraska, in the dual role of law student and football coach of the State University, says Booth. This was my first trip west of Pittsburgh, and I viewed my new duties with some apprehension. All doubts and fears were soon put at rest by the hearty encouragement and support that I received and retained in my Nebraska football relations. Most of the faculty were behind football, and H. Benjamin Andrews, at that time the head of the university, was a staunch supporter of the game. Dr. Roscoe Pound, later dean of Harvard Law School, was the father of Nebraska football. He had as intimate an acquaintance with the rule book as any official I have ever known. His advice on knotty problems was always valuable. James I. Wire, afterwards state librarian of New York, was our first financial director, and it was largely by reason of his unflagging zeal that football survived. Football spirit ran high in the Missouri Valley and there were many hard-fought contests among the teams of Iowa, Missouri, Kansas, and Nebraska. Those who saw these games, or played in them, will never forget them. Many amusing things happened in that section as well as in the East. The Haskell Indians were a picturesque team. They represented the government school at Lawrence, Kansas, an institution similar to that of Carlisle. In fact, many of the same players played on both teams at different times. We always found them a hard nut to crack, and Redwater, Archiquette, Hauser, and other Indian stars made their names well known on our field. John Outland, the noted Pennsylvania player, had charge of the Indians when I knew them. He was a great player and a fine type of man, who succeeded in imparting some of his own personality to his pupils. He once showed me a dark-faced Indian in Lawrence, who must have been at least six feet four inches tall, and of superb physique. He was a full-blooded Cheyenne, and went by the name of Bobtail Billy. Outland tried hard to break him in at guard, but as no one understood Bobtail's dialect, and he understood no one else, he never learned the signals and proved unavailable. We traveled far to play in those days, west to Boulder, Colorado, handicapped by an altitude of 5,000 feet, south to Kansas City, and north as far as St. Paul and Minneapolis. We were generally about 500 miles from our base. We were not able to take many deadheads. Harry Kersberg is one of the most enthusiastic Harvard football players I have ever met. He played guard on Harvard in 1904, 05, and 06, and is often asked back to Cambridge to coach the center men. From his playing days, let us read what he prizes in his recollections. My college career began at Lehigh with the idea of eventually going to Harvard. 
As a football enthusiast, I came under the observation of Dr. Newton, who was coaching Lehigh at that time. Doc taught me the first football I ever knew. In one of the games against Union College, Doc asked me before the game whether, if he put me in, I would deliver the goods. I said I would try and do my best. He said, that won't do. I don't want any men on my team who says, I'll try. A man has got to say, I'll do it. From that time on I never said I'll try, but always said, I'll do it. I shall never forget the day I played against John DeWitt. I did not know much about the finer points of football then. I weighed about 165 pounds, with my football clothes on, was 5 feet 9 inches tall, and 16 years old. I shall always remember seeing that great big hawk of a man opposite me. I did not have cold feet. I knew I had to go in and give the best account of myself I could. It was like going up against a stone wall. John DeWitt certainly could use his hands, with the result that I resembled paper pulp when I came out of that game. DeWitt did everything to me but kill me. After I got my growth, weight, and strength, plus my experience, I always had a desire to play against DeWitt to see if he could do the same thing again. In a Harvard-Yale game one year, I remember an incident that took place between Carr, Shevlin, and myself, says Harry. Tom Shevlin usually stood near the goal line when Yale received the kickoff. As a matter of fact, he caught the ball most of the time. The night before the Yale game, in 1905, Bill Carr and myself were discussing what might come up the following day. Inasmuch as we always lined up side by side on the kickoff, we made a wager that if Harvard kicked off, we would each be the first to tackle Shevlin. The next day Harvard won the toss and chose to kick off, and as we had hoped, Shevlin caught the ball. Carr and I raced down the field, each intent on being the first to tackle him. I crashed into Shevlin and spilled him, upsetting myself at the same time. When I picked myself up and looked around, Carr had Shevlin pilled securely to the ground. After the game we told Shevlin of our wager, and he said that under the circumstances all bets were off as both had won. Former U.S. Attorney General William H. Lewis, who is one of the leading representatives of the colored race, needs no introduction to the football world, says Kersberg. Bill, or Lou as he is familiarly known to all Harvard men, laid the foundation for the present system of line play at Cambridge. He was actively engaged in coaching until 1907, when he was obliged to give it up due to pressure of business. In 1905, Hooks, Burr, and I played the guard positions. Lou seemed to center his attention on us, and we always received more calls, after each game, than the other linemen for doing this, that, or the other thing wrong. In the Brown game of this year, Hooks played against a colored man who was exceptionally good, and who, Hooks admits afterward, put it all over him. The Monday following this game we received our usual call. After telling me what a rotten game I had played, he turned on Burr and remarked, "'What the devil was the matter with you on Saturday, Hooks? That guard on the Brown team smeared you.' Burr replied, "'I don't know what was the matter with me. I used my hands on that nigger's head and body all through the game, but it didn't seem to do any good.' Several of us who were listening felt a bit embarrassed that Hooks had unwittingly made this remark. The tension was relieved, however, when Lou drawled out, "'Why the devil didn't you kick him in the shins?' A burst of laughter greeted this sally. Donald Grant Herring, better known to football men in and out of Princeton as Hef, is one of the few American players of international experience. After a period of splendid play for the Tigers, he went to England with a Rhodes scholarship. At Merton College he continued his athletic career, and it was not long before he became a member of one of the most famous rugby fifteens ever turned out by Oxford. Hef has always said that he enjoyed the English game, but whether the brand he played was American or English, his opponent usually got little enjoyment out of a hard afternoon with this fine Princeton athlete. In the late summer of 1903, I was on a train coming east from Montana, Heff tells me, after a summer spent in the Rockies. 
a companion recognized among the passengers Doc Hillebrand, who was coming east from his ranch to coach the Princeton team. This companion, who was still a Lawrenceville schoolboy, had the nerve to brace Hillebrand and tell him in my presence that I was going to enter Princeton that fall, and that I was a star football player. You can imagine what Doc thought, and how I felt. However, Doc was kind enough to tell me to report for practice, and to recognize me when I appeared on the field several weeks later. I soon drifted over to the freshman field, and I want to admit here what caused me to do so. It was nothing more nor less than the size of Jim Cooney's legs. Jim was a classmate of mine whom I first saw on the football field when he and another tackle candidate were engaged in that delicate pastime known to linemen as breaking through. I realized at once that, if Jim and I were ever put up against one another, I would stand about as much chance of shoving him back as I would if I tried to push a steamroller. So I went over to the freshman field, where Howard Henry was coaching at the time. He was sending ends down the field, and I remember being thrilled, after beating a certain bunch of them, at hearing him say, "'You, in the brown jersey, come over here in the first squad.'" DeWitt's team beat Cornell 44-0. For years there hung on the walls of the Osborne Club at Princeton a splendid action picture of Dana Kafer making one of the touchdowns in that game. It was a mass-on-tackle play, and Jim Cooney was getting his Cornell opponent out of the way for Kafer to go over the line. The picture gave Jim dead away. He had a firm grip of the Cornell man's jersey and arm. Ten years or more afterward, a group, including Cooney, was sitting in the Osborne Club. In a spirit of fun, one man said, Jim, we know now how you got your reputation as a tackle. We can see it right up there on the wall. The next day the picture was gone. After I was graduated from Princeton in 1907, I went to Merton College, Oxford. There are 22 different colleges in Oxford, and 18 in Cambridge. Each one has its own teams and crews, and plays a regular schedule. From the best of these college teams, the university teams are drawn. Each college team has a captain and a secretary, who acts as manager. At the beginning of the college year, early October, the captain and secretary of each team go around among the freshmen of the college and try to get as many of them as possible to play their particular sport, mine rugby football. After a few days, the captain posts on the college bulletin board, which is always placed at the porter's lodge, a notice that a squash will be held on the college field. A squash is what we would call practice. Sometimes, for a few days before the game, an old blue may come down to Oxford and give a little coaching to the team. Here, often the captain does all the coaching. The Cambridge match is for blood, and, while friendly enough, is likely to be much more savage than any other. In the match I played in, which Oxford won 35-3, the record score in the whole series, which started in 1872, we had three men severely injured. In the first three minutes of the game one of our star backs was carried off the field with a broken shoulder, while our captain was kicked in the head and did not come out of his days until about seven o'clock that evening. He played throughout the game, however. Our secretary was off the field with a kneecap out of place for more than half the game. A game of rugby, by the way, consists of two forty-five-minute halves with a three-minute intermission. There are no substitutes, and if a man is injured, his team plays one man short. We beat Cambridge that year with thirteen men the greater part of the game, twelve for some time against their full team of fifteen. Their only try— touchdown in plain American, was scored when we had twelve men on the field. We were champions of England that year, and did not lose a match through the fall season, though we tied one game with the great Harlequins Club of London, whom we afterward beat in the return game. Of the fine fellows who made up that great Oxford team, six are dead, five of them are somewhere in France. Carl Flanders was a big factor in the Yale rush line. Foster Sanford considers him one of the greatest defensive centers that ever played. 
He was six feet three and one-fourth inches tall, and weighed 202 pounds. In 1906, Flanders coached the Indian team at Carlisle. Let us see some of the interesting things that characterize the Indian players, through Flanders' experience. The nicknames with which the Indians labeled one another were mostly those of animals or a weapon of defense. Mount Pleasant and Libby always called each other knife. Bill Gardner was crowned chicken legs. Charles, one of the halfbacks, and a regular little tiger, was called bird legs. Other names fastened to the different players were whalebone, shoestring, tommyhawk, and wolf. The Indians always played cleanly as long as their opponents played that way. Dillon, an old Sioux Indian, and one of the fastest guards I ever saw, was a good example of this. If anybody started rough play, Dillon would say, Stop that, boys, and the chap who was guilty always stopped. But if an opponent continually played dirty football, Dillon would say grimly, I'll get you. On the next play or two, you'd never know how, the rough player would be taken out. Dillon had got his man. Wallace Denny and Bemis Pierce got up a code of signals using an Indian word which designated a single play. Among the Indian words which designated these signals were water bucket, wateni, kukuhi. I never could find out what it all meant, and following the Indian team by this code of signals was a task which was too much for me. Bill Hoare, renowned in Colgate and Syracuse, writes, Colgate University and Colgate Academy are under the same administration, and the football teams were practicing when I entered school. I went out for the team, and after the second practice I was put into the scrimmage. I was greatly impressed with the game, and continued for the afternoon practice, and played at tackle in the first game of the season. In four years of winning football, I became acquainted with such wonderful athletes as Riley Castleman and Walter Runge of the Colgate varsity team. In the fall of 1905, I entered Syracuse University and played right tackle on the varsity team for four years, and was captain of the victorious 1908 team. In the four years, I never missed a scrimmage or a game. I think that one of the hardest games I ever played was in the game against Princeton in 1908, when they had such stars as Siegling, McFadden, Eddie Dillon, and Tibbet. The game ended in a scoreless tie, with the ball seesawing back and forth on the forty-yard line. I had been accustomed to carry the ball, and had been successful in executing a forward pass of fifty-five yards in the Yale game the week before, placing the ball on the one-yard line, only to lose it on a fumble. I had the reputation of being a good-natured player, and indirectly heard it rumored many times by coaches and football players that they would like to see me fighting mad on the football field. The few Syracuse rooters who journeyed to Easton the day we played Lafayette had that opportunity. Dowd was the captain of the Lafayette team. Next to me was Barry, a first-class football player, who stripped in the neighborhood of two hundred pounds. Just before the beginning of the second half I was in a crouching position ready to start when someone dealt me a stinging blow on the ear. I was dazed for the time being. I turned to Barry and asked him who did it. He pointed to Dowd. From that instant I was determined to seek revenge. I was ignorant of the true culprit until about a year afterward, when Anderson, who played center, and was a good friend of mine, told me about it. It seemed that just before we went on the field for the second half, Buck O'Neill, who was coaching the Syracuse team, told Barry to hit me and make me mad. End of chapter 9